0: You're listening to the pancast radio podcast made possible by COVID-19. Anna Fisher-Roberts, my next guest, is a Chicago-based flautist with me today to perform and discuss classical music in modern society. Anna, welcome aboard.
1: Uh, how are you today? I'm doing great. How are you?
0: I'm doing well. So you have, uh, tell us about yourself really quick.
1: Um, well, as Ethan said, my name's Anna, um, we go way back. We met in what middle school?
0: I think so. Eighth eighth or seventh grade. Yeah. Um,
1: so we go way back. Um, I'm here living in Chicago. I'm a Buddhist. Um, I just recently graduated from the university of Wisconsin, Madison. So I'm living here, um, working as a teacher and I haven't performed live in a really long time because. Of the quarantine, so I'm really excited to get to
0: play for you all today. And we're very excited to hear you play. Uh, just one really quick thing, uh, this is a reminder that here at Troy starts at 7 p.m., probably around 7:05 on YouTube. The link is in my bio. Uh, go check it out, Anna. You have an awesome set prepared for us. Um, take it away.
1: Thank you. Um, so. Welcome again, everyone. I've got a host of solo flute music for you this evening. Um, I'm hoping it's not your typical solo flute concert. I've got pieces spanning 1730 all the way until a month ago, um, which I'm really excited about. It's a very diverse program. Um, And after I play a little bit for you, I'd like to sit down with you and have a little chat about modern classical music performance practice. Um, I think it's an important conversation to have, but first, I want to play some stuff for you. I thought we'd get the blood moving with some Irish jigs to start. So this is Kid on a Mountain paired with the Road to Lisbon. <laughs> music. Um, This particular piece is based on the American Indian tradition, and it was inspired by this painting by artist Maria Buchbink, and it depicts a flutist calling forth spirits from the clouds. It's really, really an evocative piece, and you'll get to hear some techniques inspired by the American Indian flute tradition. maybe a little more obscure um, stuff that maybe even flute players haven't heard of, but in all honesty, it's not really a solo flute concert without this next piece. Um, This is Syrinx by Claude Debussy, which is quite possibly the most famous piece for solo flute ever written. Uh, It was written in 1913 when French composers were experimenting with um, not classical Western scales. So this is an example of what's called exoticism in French Impressionist music. So it doesn't sound like it's in major or minor. It's in a slightly different scale, and it's it's really cool. Like in 1913, France, this would have been considered super exotic and fascinating, and it's still super exotic and fascinating. Um, so there's a reason this piece is so famous. Enjoy Syrinx by Claude Debussy. so stay tuned for that. Uh, In the meantime, I'm very, very privileged today to get to play not one but two pieces that were written in the past year. Um, I really, really like working with composers because it's so much fun to collaborate, to hear their ideas, and to get to create something so amazing together. Um, This first one is called Contemplation et Réflexion, une prière. It's by composer Matthew Hannes. Um, He is currently at the University of Wisconsin-Madison getting his doctorate in composition. Uh, And this piece actually is a prize winner. It won the Mullen Prize for Sacred Music this year. So huge congratulations to Matthew for that. It's a fabulous piece. Um, Matthew wrote this for me in 2019. It's, as the name suggests, very contemplative, reflective, with a lot of prayer-like elements. And you'll get to hear some awesome extended techniques in here. the jet whistle is one of my favorites. You'll definitely hear it. You'll know it when you hear it. Um, wind tones in here, lit pizzicato, uh, which is where I'm going, just basically doing the articulation, nothing else. Um, P clicks, multiphonics. There's so much cool stuff in here, and it's just a gorgeous piece. So enjoy Contemplation et Reflexion by Matthew. Thank you for such an awesome piece, Matthew. No wonder a prize winner. Yes, huge round of applause for Matthew. He's hopefully been able to access the live stream. Um, he's such a fantastic composer. I got to connect with him at UW Madison, and I'm lucky to say that this is not the only piece of his that I've played, so look out for him. He's going to be famous. <laughs> um, all right, so now we're going to pivot a bit to the 1960s, and a composer named Robert Muschinski, Um, He is an American composer, uh, and he wrote these fantastic three preludes for unaccompanied flute. Um, Even though they're called preludes, they actually were originally intended to be encores. Um, Little pieces that you'd come out and play at the third round of applause. And you can see why, like they're really cute, they're explosive, they're expressive, and I really wanted to play all three, but I only have time to do one. So I'm going to do the first one. Um, It's an allegro and the composer described it as J'entends. like 5-8 circus thing, they so much fun. Um, I have them all on my YouTube channel, quick shameless plug, so go check them out. They're very, very cool little pieces. Um, the next piece is the second one on the program that was written within the year. This is actually only about a month old. It's called A Prayer for Rain, and it was written by composer Neil Durbin. Uh, Neil and I connected over a Facebook group called Music But Everyone's in Quarantine, And I sent out a post saying that I wanted some flute music, and Neil uh, sent me back that he would write me something. And it was kind of a cool conception. He asked if there were any extended techniques that I particularly liked, and I told him I liked the lit pizzicato, which is the this thing. Um, I said I thought it sounded like rain, and he said I'm gonna run with that. So he wrote a piece called A Prayer for Rain. Um, It's a really neat little piece. It's more than just the lit pizzapato, there's a lot of um, uh, what are they called? Key clicks. That's what I'm looking for. Key clicks. There's some singing and playing at the beginning. Um, it's a really interesting piece, specially written for the COVID 19 crisis. So it's definitely timely. It's beautiful. Enjoy A Prayer for Rain by Mielder. Thank you, Neil, what an awesome piece. Yeah, huge hand for Neil, what a fantastic piece. Um, also, Neil sent this to me in like, what, a few weeks? Which is insanely impressive. Thank you, Neil. i um, thrilled to have the opportunity to work on fantastic new music, especially while we're all separated from each other. All right, so next up is a newer favorite of mine, that recently came back into my life. It's from The Suite Mythologique by Leonardo de Lorenzo. Um, It's got three movements for solo flute, and they're all based off of Greek mythological figures, um, all related to music. The first one is Pan, who is every flute player's favorite god or deity ever, because he plays the Pan pipes, and he's known for playing the flute. Um, This is another example of the use of the syrinx scale, this really interesting, not quite major or minor scale. This one really sounds like an improvisation. It's very cool. Uh, Quick story behind this piece in particular, I found it at a little music shop in France and started working on it, fell in love with it because it's fantastic. And then it just kind of vanished from my life. I couldn't find it and had no idea where it was. And after tearing my everything I had apart for two years, I gave up and figured it had gone into the ether. And then about a month ago, my mother texts me a picture of it and says, hey, do you want this? Which was basically the greatest day of my life. So now I get to work on it again, and I'm falling in love with it all over again. This is the first movement of Leonardo de Lorenzo's Suite Mythologique, number one. such a great piece thank you Um, I'm really looking forward to learning this whole piece and putting it up on my YouTube channel because the third movement is killer it's basically just black the whole time so I'm really excited to learn it but it's going to take Before you today, and they're both by Gert Telemann, um, who is a Baroque composer. He was writing these pieces in the 1730s, and he wrote 12 fantasies for solo flute. They're all fabulous, and the shtick to them is they're all in a different key, and they all have to fit on two pages, so the soloist doesn't have to deal with any page turns. Um, I'm going to talk about a concert that I did with the Telemann pieces a little bit later, but for now, what I'm gonna tell you is I'm gonna mess with them a little bit. So you're gonna hear Baroque music, but it's gonna have a little bit of extra to it. Um, I'm gonna play two of them for you. The first one I'm gonna play is Fantasy Number One. And Ethan, actually, our lovely host, wrote a wonderful narration for me to go along with this piece. It's extremely charming. It's about a bakery and its employees. So I'm gonna go ahead and read the narration and play it along with the piece. It's very evocative. And I think that you'll hear what he hears in. The sun has yet to rise on the fresh formed morning as Jacob rolls out the Achievado Joseph, his young son sits to the side, legs dangling from the wood table, a chocolate chip cookie in hand. The baker's son tells his father about some products he'd found the other day while he was out by the river with his mother. And the baker listens intently, his hands moving over the dough to feel for uneven spots, to fan out a heavy, albeit fine, dusting of flour, to cut into even squares with a pizza roller. And he laughs at the way his son said, let me tell you about thunderstorms and how simple things were marveled at through young eyes. Next, the pastries prepared two days before. Jacob paints the puffy dough with egg wash and sprinkles sugar on the scones and crumble on the turnovers. They talk about sports, The basketball game that afternoon, a soccer game the night before. Joseph likes soccer the most, especially when he can play on the same team as his friends. And as they talk, the sun slowly rises with the proofing of the baguettes. The start of a new day. summer air as the bakery grew ever more clustered with employees. Dinah the bachelor came in around five to start the dough. Around six, Dan and Ash came in to start forming the cuts of dough into round balls and ovals. Levy, the delivery driver, came in around seven. And Sarah, always at least ten minutes late, followed not too long after. The coffee was brewed and the radio turned up to the Rolling Stones. The heart of the bakery was fully awake, bustling with bakery. started a story, still forming the dough with a mechanical Zen. I was on a hike the other day when I saw these kids on the top of a hill, pretending they were outlaws or robbers or something in the wild west. Their parents down at the bottom were the cops, I guess. Anyway, they were making these shooting noises and revving up their cars. And this kid just yells, you've got 10 seconds before I start shooting, buddy. And as we round at the corner, his friend yells at a hold up partner. Can I call you partner? Sure, partner. We've got company. And the kids stopped their fire and looked giddily ashamed as we passed. And as soon as we were but yards away, they resumed shooting, mocking their poor parents. And Ash laughed at the story, responding, I just don't want kids ever. Good, that makes two of us, was the response. (laughs) a continuation and it's really cute. I wish I had time to do all of them, but I don't. Um, I'm gonna do one more. It's number four, which is one of my personal favorites. And so just a little bit of background here. I'm gonna tell you about the whole thing later, but a little bit of background. Um, When I did this concert originally, part of it was randomized in terms of style. I wanted to mess around with Baroque versus not Baroque. And one of the style choices I had was jazz and blues style. And I found that fantasy number four was actually particularly suited to it. So what I'm going to do, there are three movements here. I'm going to play the first one, Baroque style. I'm going to play the second movement, jazz, blues, swing style. And then in the third movement, there are repeats. And traditionally in Baroque music, when you repeat, um, the instrumentalist is getting an opportunity to ornament. Rather than ornamenting with trills, I'm going to play jazz and blues style on the repeat. Um, so fantasy number four by Telemann in jazz style, he was an innovator. So I like to think he would have been into it. <laughs> Of course, thank you
0: for performing.
1: Oh, it's such a blast. Um, so I've, I've got a little time left. I'd, I'd love to chat a little bit about modern performance practice because the telemons, that's kind of what I was messing with a little bit, was performance practice. Um, and so I decided that right before I left Madison to move to Chicago, I wanted to do a concert of some Type. Um, It was originally conceived as something that would keep me practicing through the summer, but it actually morphed into a really interesting experiment. Um, As I worked on these pieces, I realized that as amazing as they are, it would be tough for anyone to listen to over an hour of Baroque solo flute in a row. Um, So I decided to make it a little more interesting. I asked some artists to collaborate with me. Ethan, for example, wrote some narrations. Um, Rose Klein, who's a good friend of me and a wonderful writer, wrote a beautiful poem for number two that she performed with me. Um, Another good friend and fantastic composer, Mong Mong Wang, composed an amazing electronic track for number three. Um, In fact, that one's on my website and on my YouTube channel. You should definitely check that out. It's extraordinary. Um, And she also did a painting slideshow to go with number eight. And number seven is labeled a la francese in the French style. So when I would play that one, I'd speak in a stupid French accent, wear a beret, and pass out brie and crackers. Um, so they were four remaining, but didn't have anything special. So I would play with the style a little bit on those. So this was interesting, but I wanted to take it further. Uh, I'm a nerd. I play D and D, so I have dice of many sizes. And since there are 12 fantasies, what if I had an audience member roll a 12 sided die to determine the order in which I played the fantasies? Um, and then for the ones that didn't have anything assigned, they'd roll a four sided style die. So if they rolled a one, I'd play it standing on one foot. A two, they'd play it jazz and blues style. A three, I'd play it modern style um, with, a lot of mo- um, with a lot of modern extended techniques. And four would do Baroque style. So I liked this, but I wasn't really sure how it was gonna be received. Uh, I performed this at an establishment called Capitol Lakes in Madison. It's this beautiful retirement home and it's a beloved place for music students because they allow students to hold recitals in their hall for free. Um, and there's also a built-in audience since the residents love to come and hear the music. So the residents there are very, very sophisticated classical music listeners. They've heard doctoral lectures and recitals, and they've experienced music from most romantic opera to the most postmodern atonal stuff. So they're very sophisticated. They're used to hearing classical music in its formal tradition, and I wasn't quite sure how they'd take this. But I wrote a cryptic program, and I held kind of an air of mystery as they filled into the hall. So I come out. I play First Fantasy, number no. four, in normal, formal baroque style. And they all applaud respectfully. Then I grab the mic and I tell them how the concert's gonna go down. I mention the dice and they start absolutely cracking up. They were interested. How the air in the room changed. I knew they enjoyed the formal presentation of the first fantasy, but pretty soon they were laughing with me, calling out questions, shouting out requests. I was having an absolute blast, like more fun than I've ever had before on stage. At one point, this guy randomly shouts out, why are you moving to Chicago? It was by today's standards, a little chaotic for classical music, but we were having such a blast. Every audience member was engaged, excited about the opportunity to be involved, to be connected with us, the performers, and to see something new and different, to have fine music and art brought to them in such a strange way. I wasn't sure how they'd feel about like the modern Telamon, so me throwing in a bunch of extended techniques but it actually got one of the biggest rounds of applause. Um, And the way they rolled the dice, I ended up playing the one of the most technical fantasies on one foot right before intermission. Like, you can't plan this stuff. It was awesome. I didn't want it to end. And after the concert, I got nothing but positive feedback for me, for my wonderful collaborators, and for the idea itself. It was overwhelming. The audience loved feeling involved and loved this fresh take on classical music. So I'm not saying that a group of extremely sophisticated retirees is a focus group but it brings me to my main point here which is why aren't young people listening to classical music young people aren't going to symphonies the only composers widely known are beethoven and mozart if even those many young people don't even know that classical music is still being composed actively today it's so far removed from our culture and i honestly think that it doesn't have anything at all to do with the music it's the presentation. Look at any other music genre, pop, rock, country, new age, indie, folk. All these genres have evolved over the times. You go hear a pop concert, you're up and about, you're on your phone, you're taking pictures, you're texting, you're drinking beer, you're eating food, you're chatting, you're singing along with the songs you love, you're on the floor dancing and sweating, and it's a blast. Like, of course you wanna go, not only because the music is good, but because the atmosphere is great. It's modernized for 2020. Now look at classical music. We dress up. We arrive early or we're locked out. We sit squished into tiny seats next to strangers. Phones go off. Lights go off. We applaud politely, but only at the appropriate time. And if you're wrong, you'd better be able to placate the old lady uh, because she just shushed you so loudly that the entire two rows in front of you turn to look at you. Um, The cacophony of coughs that happens every movement of a symphony because you don't dare cough during it and you're stuck in that seat for two hours, maybe longer. Don't even bother trying for the restroom and intermission. You'll never get through the line in time for the second half. And you'll get bounced if you're in the wrong seat, even if you're trying to get a better. So is it any wonder that people, especially people of our generation who are so used to things moving quickly, are so used to being up and about and involved that they're not interested in these concerts. I mean, I'm a classical musician and there have been many times that I've passed on a symphony concert because young people are skipping out on a symphony for a reason. It's not a friendly, comfortable atmosphere. There's another element to this as well. And that's the interaction between performers and audience. You go to a pop concert, the singer's addressing the audience, looking you straight in the eyes, naming your city, like calling audience members up to the stage, reacting to your energy. In classical music we get a few bows from the conductor and the concertmaster, and then like a wall goes up. The orchestra is lost in orchestra world of counting rhythms and trying to come in at exactly the same dynamic and we're listening and watching it happen from the outside. Not that that's not magical. It is such hard work to be in an orchestra and make it sound good and it's incredible to see a really good orchestra work like that but there is distance once the music starts you're an observer and whether the whole audience is rapidly engaged or snoring the music doesn't change the performance doesn't change so why not why has classical music remained so entrenched in the old traditions while everything else evolved to fit the modern day this might seem like a perversion of the music but when i look at a composer like mozart He was such an innovator. He was always on the cusp of what was acceptable, churning out crazy new works, playing with possibilities. He was speculating with atonal writing uh, over a hundred years before other composers started to. There's actually some speculation that if Mozart had lived another 10 years, he died really young at 35. If he'd lived another 10 years, classical music would be completely different today. Honestly, I think that if he came into the modern era and he saw microphones and TVs and amps and screens, and he went into a concert hall, he'd say, I'm sorry, why aren't you doing that with my music? Interestingly, in Mozart's day, people listened to music in very much the same way that we listen to rock and pop today. There was no rock and pop in Mozart's day. There was classical music and folk music. And the only real difference between these was that folk music wasn't written down and classical music was. and this, of course, allowed for an enormous amount of complexity to be developed in classical music that folk music just couldn't match. Like, ever tried playing a Beethoven symphony by ear? Yeah, not super possible, but classical music was the music of the day. The people who went to concerts went to hear the hot new composers and their music. Kind of. They went to hear the music, of course. But they also went to drink booze and coffee and tea and eat sweets and gossip with their friends and see that fabulous new tenor who's so gorgeous and has the amazing voice. They went to catch a glimpse of Mozart, the crazy composer genius, to get up on stage and take a bow. They went to socialize, to be seen, to party, and to hear the music. In fact, it was common practice to go see an opera several times because you had no idea what was going on because you were talking the whole time. Does this sound familiar? Music wasn't only music. It was an excuse to have a party and enjoy the company of your friends. Concert halls were actually arranged so that the boxes were across from one another. Um, So it was actually easier to peep at the people in the box across from you than it was to see the action on stage. Concerts were a social event. Mozart understood this. In his days, musicians were servants, and he was a servant, and his service was to provide music. He would go play piano in salons while his patrons drank and gossiped and chatted over his music. Beethoven, actually, was the first real diva composer. When he played in salons, he would actually stop playing if people talked over him. And there, if you've ever heard a Beethoven piano sonata, because they're incredible, he thought, why shouldn't he stop playing if people weren't going to listen? After all, he poured his heart and soul and blood into that music, and if they couldn't appreciate it enough to shut up and listen, well, then why should they get to hear it? Beethoven was actually the first composer to really think of himself as an artist rather than as a servant. And his successors followed suit, pouring themselves into these powerful and amazing music. And this idea progressed. The audience changed. The concert hall became a semicircle focused on the stage and the performers rather than on the other audience members. And we silenced and listened to the music. And It was incredible music. So we became serious about consuming classical music the right way, listening to it, appreciating it in all its glory and complexity. There's a lot to that. But other music industries changed. Other music industries realize that modern people just aren't as interested in sitting for long periods of time just listening to music. Maybe because most people don't have a formal music education when basically all aristocrats did 150 years ago. Maybe because classical music and composers aren't studied in school. Maybe because there's so much other music available and so much of it is excellent that classical music lost its place as sole proprietor of awesome artistic music. With the advent of groups like the Beatles, classical music wasn't the only place that you could really see art in music. So gradually the audiences for symphonies began to dwindle. Classical music is intensely complex and fascinating, especially if you just sit back and let yourself listen. There's no better feeling in the entire world than to get to sit and listen to a symphony. But how long do you have that kind of attention? Mahler's symphonies are over an hour long. How often are you gonna give up dinner and drinks with your friends to sit for an hour in your seat, not moving, not checking your phone, and just letting the music wash over you? Once a year, maybe? But there are thousands of symphony orchestras, millions of classical musicians, putting on extraordinary performances every day, And we're not going to hear them no matter how good they are because we know. Well, I mean, they're probably great, but I'd rather go eat or whatever. I don't really wanna sit for two hours and listen. The musicians don't really do anything on stage. I can't talk, I can't text, there's no dance floor, and I can't even clap without someone glaring at me. And I'd have to dress up, it's a whole big thing. I'll just go see, insert pop artist here, so I can listen and drink beer at the same time. And it's such a shame that we feel that way because I know no dance beat more thrilling than the last movement of a Haydn symphony no love song more poignant than La Boheme, and no more stunningly beautiful collection of notes than the first movement of Mahler one. So why is no one hearing it? We need stars here. We need this music to come alive in a big way. Where are the conductors entering by high-fiving the front row and shouting, what's up Chicago, to a cacophony of screams? Where are the rock star violinists shredding out four seasons, going out into the audience and chucking bow hairs? Where are the Instagram posts of the second horn player belting out the solos and Strauss's Till people? Where are the audiences who jump and spill their beer and crack up every time they're su- startled by the surprise symphony? Where is the wild applause when the flutist nails the Daphnis at Chloe solo? Because honestly, as someone who's played that solo, I want to hear some wild applause after I play it, because it's really difficult. Why do we hide this? Why is there so much distance? I don't think there has to be. Classical musicians can be involved with their audiences just as much as artists in all other music genres can. I'm not suggesting we do away with the traditional symphony. I love the traditional symphony, of course. I'm suggesting we have a concurrent thread of classical music performances that look more like pop performances. What if a chamber orchestra went to a pop venue to play Haydn? What if a string quartet played some killer late Beethoven with the bass amped up? What if the performers Fed off audiences and their energy. What if we could connect? I really believe that we can. I would love to see more interaction of performers on stage to see the electricity of contact and connection and concentration that it takes to make music work. I would love to see performers, soloists, owning the stage, taking up space. I would love to see audiences on their feet, taken by the thrill of the music because it's so possible. I really believe that young people would fall in love with classical music if it were presented in a way that caters to modern audiences. It's my mission to get this going. I really think classical music is, music is incredible, incredible art, and I hope that everyone listening is inspired to go out and find a classical piece to listen to because it's truly some of the greatest music ever written. Um, thank you so, so much everyone who's joined this live stream. I'm gonna do a quick shameless plug before you kick me off. Um, Check out my website, AnnaFisherRoberts.com, my YouTube, my Facebook. I'm on Twitter and Instagram as Maestra underscore AFR. Um, I am doing a recording project right now, so I'm putting up a bunch of solo flute music. I also have a blooming Patreon. Um, For only $3 a month, you can become a patron and get access to all kinds of cool, exclusive content. And in honor of this live stream for a limited time, um, I am offering uh, that you, if you become a patron of any tier, um, I will record a piece for your choosing just for you. This is usually reserved only for the highest tier at 20 bucks a month, but I'm gonna do it for everyone who becomes a patron up until June 22nd. So if you like what I'm doing, help to support me. Um, Huge, huge thanks to Ethan Fox and Pancast Radio for putting this all together. And I hope you all
0: enjoy the rest of the stream. Anna, thank you again so much. Um, thank you, All right. And once again, we're taking a little break from Instagram. We are going over to YouTube where the original cast of Akira Troy, um, Maria Dallas Harris, Cormac Dobling, uh Andrew Wright, Rami Moore, and Susan Zhu are all ready to give you an incredible performance. And we'll be back in about two hours with more content. Anna, thank that you again. Awesome.
1: Thank you so much, Ethan.